it's the children who don't matter so much but the children do show them daisies and the pale hepatica teach them the taste of the sassafras and the winter green the lives of the blue sailors mallow sunburst and the mocassin flowers and the frisky ones inkberry lambert's quarters blueberries and the aromatic ones rosemary oregano give them peppermint to put in their pockets as they go to school give them the fields and the woods and the possibility of the world salvaged from the lords of profit stand them in the stream head them upstream rejoice as they learn to love this green space they live in it sticks and leaves and then the silent beautiful blossoms attention is the beginning of devotion this short yet stirring excerpt comes from Mary Oliver's essay upstream i am shreya mishra along with naman jain and you are listening to zeroing in with dr renee maria borges in our further conversation with dr borges we delve into her extensive research work which investigates sensory biology of interactive systems such as pigs and the fig wasps and plant mutualism fungus growing termites and the pollination systems in the western ghats we talked about her experiences and challenges she encountered while conducting experiments out in the open while she parallelly introduced us to a beautiful world coexisting with us Uh, we'd like to move forward on your uh, research directions. So here, uh, there's a very recurring topic which we see throughout your work that deals with the figs and the fig wasps. And uh, I know you've talked about them in your pre- previous interviews that you went through. But yeah, so uh, we'd like to know what is so intriguing about this system that you've been studying for so long. Yeah, sure. So it's one of the many systems that I have studied, and yeah, certainly we can talk about it. Uh, it's fascinating because I like to work on systems that have very specific interactions. You know, where you have one species interacting with another specific species, and the reason I say this is because when you have uh there are about 850 species of figs in the world today and uh, there are 850 approximately pollinating wasps so each fig usually has a very species specific wasp which will uh, pollinate it and it's it's a very nice sort of give and take mutualism where uh, the fig gives up some of its flowers as a brooding or breed breeding sites for the wasp so the wasp lays its own eggs in those flowers and uh, in turn the the fig gets pollinated because the wasp will also do pollination so if you've all seen a fig you know that it's a round structure and the flowers are internal and there's only one opening into this closed world so this is a fascinating closed microcosm uh, it's fascinating because it's almost like 
secret passwords, you know, how in the old days uh, when you had to enter a fort or something, you needed a secret password, otherwise you couldn't get in. So similarly, figs have secret passwords. These secret passwords are the particular scent that each fig species will release to attract the specific wasp species to it. And even the opening of this chamber is so adapted so that other wasps will find it very difficult to get in. So there is a lot of adaptation, co-adaptation, co-evolution which has gone on, both in terms of the chemical signaling involved, in terms of the morphology involved, in terms of the uh, developmental biology, because the seeds have to develop and the wasps also have to develop inside this microcosm, which means that it's almost like, you know, the gestation period, like a human baby has nine months. Different figs uh, develop from a few weeks to up to three months to four months. And different figs are of different sizes. There are 850 species of figs. I think the largest fig uh, is something of the size of a small football. You know, so you can imagine that the flowers are also you know, bigger and the wasps are also bigger. So you've got an adaptation and a co-adaptation going on in terms of the size, in terms of the chemistry, in terms of the breeding biology, because the wasp and the seeds have to finish their development at the same time. Development is very important. and there are not only pollinators developing inside this fig. In my work, we have shown there are many parasites also that develop. And um, what's even more fascinating in this fig story is that there is sexual dimorphism. So the female wasps have the wings and the male wasps have no wings. They they will live and die in the nursery in which they are born. That's a very tragic thing for the male, right? Imagine. Yeah. Very sad for a male living and dying in the never gets really to see the outside world. So there's this huge sexual uh, dimorphism, and the males actually have these big mouth parts that they help to make a hole through the fig wall to release the females out of the fig. So the males cooperate with each other to release the females. But what's what's interesting when I was telling you about this synchrony in developmental biology is that there are other parasitic wasps also that try to capitalize on the resources available within the microcosm. Now, the parasitic wasp males don't have good mouth parts, so they can't bite themselves out to release the females, their females, which means that they have to depend on the pollinator males to do that, right? Which also means that all the parasitic wasps have to synchronize their development so that their males and females are ready at the same time 
as the pollinator males and females are ready to leave the microcosm. So there is this fantastic orchestration and synchrony and beautiful developmental biology and chemistry and it's just a beautiful system. I have a, a, a small question here. All these systems which are codependent on each other, where's the beginning of such a system? Like if there's a separate fig and there was a separate fig wasp, how did they even come to know each other in the first place? Similarly, how does even symbiosis work at any level? I've never understood this concept. Ah, <laughs> okay, fabulous, lovely question. So how does symbiosis work? So before I say that, I just want to also clarify because there is often a misconception. Uh, by symbiosis, I mean cohabitation, okay? So something has to either live on or inside something. It can be a parasite, it can be a mutualist. So symbiosis is not equivalent to mutualism, okay? It's not synonymous with mutualism. Sometimes people synonymize these two words, but the way, uh, the correct way to talk about symbiosis is cohabitation. So we have symbionts in our gut, our gut bacteria are our symbiote. So symbiosis is actually a process of increasing evolutionary nobility. What do I mean by this? You know, prokaryotic cells and eukaryotic cells. Uh, a eukaryotic cell is one of the examples of the early symbiosis because, you know, the nucleus, the mitochondria, the chloroplasts, these are other organisms that have been got into another cell. And then there has been a give and take, the mitochondria has lost some of its genes, uh, given it up to the nucleus, etc., etc. So over evolutionary time, there has been a give and a take. So that's like the earliest, earliest dawn of symbiosis. When you think of the evolution even of the eukaryotic cell. Okay? But in that sense, all symbiosis, since we were talking about mutualistic symbiosis and maybe that's something that may be of, of, of interest you know, to you right now. Most mutualistic uh, symbioses actually originate as parasitisms. For example, any mutualism, let us take uh, pollination as a mutualism. It needn't be a symbiotic pollination system. It's a pollinator coming to a flower and doing an act of pollination. Now, it is believed that the early flower visitors were actually flower parasites. So they were coming to flowers just to get rewards. You know, the early, whether they were gymnosperms and then later the early angiosperms were giving, were producing uh, you know, pollen is a way to, is, is like a gamete, right? It is the male gamete of the flower. Uh, but pollen is also very nutritious. So any flower visitor would want to come, some of them, to eat the pollen, right? 
So in the process of eating the pollen as a parasite, they might incidentally start doing some beneficial acts which are mutualistic, which become and turn into pollination. So nothing starts right away as being mutualistic. Usually things start as being exploitative or parasitic and then by chance if a win-win situation can slowly develop, then it evolves over time into a mutualism. So, of course, this has happened over millions and millions of years. So, the fig and fig wasp interaction, for example, is believed to be about 75 million years old. So, there have been 75 million years of this kind of evolution and time for this kind of evolution. And this kind of evolution is even going on as we speak because evolution doesn't stop. Uh, Ma'am, with your personal observations and experience, uh, can you just tell me if this, uh, that we're talking about this evolution, that it started from uh, basically a parasitic action and then turned into a mutualism. Nature, does it function to favor this more or is it like an equal probability thing? It can happen and it cannot happen. Okay, so if you think about Darwinian evolution, right? You've heard, you've heard of Charles Darwin, right? And his principles of evolution by the process of natural selection. So there it's, it's a question of uh, there being variation and there being a genetic basis for this variation. And then whoever has is better adapted at that time, those individuals move into the next generation or their offspring move into the next generation. So from that perspective, evolution, it's a selfish process. Yes, because every individual wants to have the maximum number of its offspring propagated and surviving. However, we do see instances of cooperation, right? A species cooperating like as I, we've seen mutualists or we've seen cooperation in human society. And the interesting thing there is that cooperation is in one's own selfish interest. So if you think about that, that is how cooperation evolves because, I mean, imagine if you were eating in a hostile mess and you were a very, very selfish individual who didn't bother about cleaning your plate or left everything, you know, terribly messy. And if everybody started doing that, the mess would be really messy, right? So then <laughs> either you have to have somebody imposing a rule from the top saying whoever doesn't clean the plates and leave, you know, will be punished. So you bring in punishment. Or you have an implicit cooperative pact with your fellow colleagues that you will all be as, you know, clean and neat and tidy because it pays to cooperate. 
right? Because if you don't cooperate, it's not going to be, it's not in your best interest. So if you think about, therefore, even the evolution of cooperation as coming from an individual selfish interest, then a lot of things start making perfect sense. However, we also have cases of punishment in animal society. So humans are not the only ones that, that uh, punish. We have animal societies because as I told you, there are only two ways perhaps of um, uh, getting cooperation. One is uh, there is a police force that is <laughs> uh, making sure that you, you know, if you run a red light, you will pay a fine. Or if you don't do the right thing, you will be punished. So there could be a police force. Or as I said, there can be a mutual agreement to cooperate because everybody realizes, like in a cooperative housing society, right? You cooperate to take your garbage out because if one person leaves garbage on the staircase, so all the cats and dogs can open it up and mess the whole staircase up, everybody then cooperates and self-regulates and goes through a process of self-regulation because that's in your own selfish interest. You're not doing it for somebody else, but you're doing it for yourself. So even in animal societies, uh, for example, in the fig system, we've got these figs into which the wasps are coming in. The wasps want to lay eggs. The wasps also have to do pollination. But sometimes there can be selfish wasps that just want to lay eggs and don't want to do pollination. Now the fig has a feedback system. So the fig realizes there are not enough seeds that have been fertilized in this fig, but there are too many developing wasps. So what does the fig do? The fig cuts off the nutrition to that particular fruit and it aborts. Okay, so that is punishment. So the fig is telling the pollinator, you know, you cannot exploit me, you cannot over-exploit me. Yes, this mutualism is about mutual exploitation. I exploit you for bringing the pollen in and doing the pollination. You are exploiting me because I'm giving you flowers in which you lay your eggs. But if you over-exploit me, I'm going to punish you. And there are many systems in nature which have these feedback mechanisms by which uh, punishment is actually meted out so that uh, uh, exploitation is controlled. That makes a lot of sense how incredible our nature is balanced. Probably we humans cannot even match 1% of how well the entire natural system is balanced. Right. I mean, we have our own, you know, ways of, as I said, keeping unruly, <laughs> depends on how we define unruly. And <laughs> But animals have their own, plants have their own system. I told you this is a plant example where the fig is uh, punishing an unruly pollinator. 
um i wanted to ask this uh, i mean uh, probably a different tangent but uh, given that you mentioned that there are these huge variety of figs currently as well and all of these must have survived uh, seemingly random genetic changes that happen over the years and then they're still there and then there are also warps which have survived to be able to pollinate each and every different kinds of things So I just wanted to ask how and what basically shapes these selections in a general sense, or if there is a overall more general um, application of this idea in, for instance, at a different scale, or probably in a animal environment as well, or how how do these the changes that sustain basically in the long term and evolutionary perspective, how do they get selected, or can there be multiple selections and then something else happens later on? Oh absolutely so you've asked me a very interesting question about how are these changes sustained and maintained over evolutionary time so there are several ways a classic way is what we call uh, an arms race scenario you know you must have heard of the arms race in missile technology or in 2G 3G 4G 5G right i mean these are arms races yeah so if you understand an arms race in terms of uh us russia missile technology you are just escalating uh, to ensure that you remain at the same relative position it's a little bit like uh, i don't know whether you have heard of uh, the red queen hypothesis the red queen is a character in alice in wonderland and through the looking glass right and the red queen is this remarkable i mean the red queen tells alice that uh, you have to move as fast as you can to stay in the same place so this is a, amazing insight what do i mean you have to keep running as fast as you can to stay in the same place this means in terms of relative position so if the fig is running the wasp has to also run and vice versa right uh this is uh, a process of playing catch up or uh, coevolution or for example you can talk about since i mentioned toxins and plant chemistry we know that plants defend themselves against being eaten by herbivores by producing some oftentimes very toxic chemicals now again the herbivores can start getting adapted to those chemicals and produce detoxifying enzymes which will prevent them from getting sick after they have consumed these plants so if herbivores then have uh, developed an adaptation to counter these poisons the plant in turn will develop another adaptation and then the herbivore might develop another counter adaptation so both plant and herbivore are running as fast as they can to stay in the same relative place yeah so this is actually uh one of the constant themes in evolution playing catch up 
Sometimes there is an evolutionary lag. So nothing in evolution is necessarily perfectly adapted. So there can be, we are not perfectly adapted, right? We have bad backs as we grow older. Our backs always have some problem or the other. And that's because we are still have an evolutionary lag from the more a quadrupedal locomotion of our primate ancestors. We are erect and we are bipedal, but our spine is not fully adapted to it. And now that we are sitting more and more in front, in front of our computers, we are getting more and more back problems, right? Because uh, we are lagging behind. Yeah? So in evolution, it is a myth that everything is perfectly adapted. There is nothing like perfect adaptation because sometimes things are running ahead or, and other things are playing a catch-up process. So like, for example, with global warming, climate change, maybe organisms can't catch up as fast as the rate at which the climate is changing because, you know, mutations and adaptation takes a long, long period of time. But we are changing our environment so fast that plants and animals and humans also cannot cope up with the rate of change. With all the systems that you've worked with, one was the fig and the fig wasps, there is an elaborate work on the ant-plant interactions and then there's on the pollination system. Uh, could you just talk about one of the systems so, yes, as I told you earlier, I choose systems that I believe will be challenging at the same time are amenable to asking interesting questions. So with the fungus farming termites, these are termite mounds that we see in the campus in the Indian Institute of Science campus. And I was always intrigued by them, you know, how do the termites build these mounds? Uh, I, we know that uh, the termites are actually farming fungus inside these mounds. So they are using these mounds as greenhouses. So I was fascinated by this because here again, you have a mutualism between an insect and a fungus. And so I thought, wow, you know, this is a system which is on the ISC campus. It's right outside our doorstep. Uh, I'm sure that we will be able to ask some very interesting questions. So I had some very uh, dedicated students who helped me in this journey. And I decided to uh, divide it up into two types of questions to ask. So one major question to ask in that system was we knew that, as I have said, even in the fig system, there are always parasites in any mutualism. Because, you know, there are always parasites in nature, right? Somebody who's trying to get something for nothing. And in this fungus farming system, there is another parasitic fungus that, if not controlled, will take over the fungus farm. So this is like agriculture in humans, you know. Uh, human agriculture, farmers always need to be able to weed their crops or spray pesticide if they need to, to control weeds from taking over their farms. 
So I wanted to know how do the termites control parasitic fungi? And there is one particular highly co-evolved group of parasitic fungi. So one of my students set out to find this and he found some completely fascinating things. He found that firstly, the mutualistic fungus normally grows quite slowly inside the mound. But if you take the parasitic fungus and you grow it in the laboratory, its growth rate is very, very fast. It will very quickly dominate and overgrow the mutualistic fungus. So that was a big mystery, you know. If parasitic fungus can grow so fast, why is it not overgrowing the mutualistic fungus inside the mound? And then he was able to find that the termites can actually smell the parasitic fungus. So they smell the parasitic fungus when it is just beginning to grow. And the moment they smell the parasitic fungus, they immediately smear it with this broad spectrum antibiotic that they have in their salivary glands. So they, they put this broad spectrum antibiotic. Now, when we learned that, we were, we were wondering if termites have this broad spectrum fungicide, you know, like if you have a fungal infection, you put a broad spectrum uh, fungicide. It should kill even the mutualistic fungus because it's a fungus, so it should die. Even the mutualistic fungus should die. But because we discovered for the first time that the termites can smell the parasitic fungus even at very low concentrations, when it is just beginning to grow. So immediately the termite workers will start burying the parasitic fungus. So not only do they put this antibiotic, antifungal on it, but they kill the parasitic fungus by doing a live burial. That sounds really terrible, right? That you bury something alive. But this is what the termites do. They have this exquisite, termites don't have good eyesight, they are actually blind. They have a very, very well-developed sense of smell. And they smell out the parasite and immediately bury it and plaster it with the fungicide and kill it by doing this live burial. Yes? So this is one of the ways in which we discovered that termites control the parasitic fungus in the mound. We also discovered that just like very specialized crops, there is only one genetic type in each termite mound, you know. Like farmers will grow one type of grain in their field. They will not mix two types of rice or two types of wheat in their field. The termites will only grow one genetic strain of their mutualistic fungus in each of their greenhouses. But there are many, many different strains of the parasite that are hanging around. So here again, this is like a parasite strategy that if one strain, you know, doesn't, uh, can't try and dominate, then the other strain will try and dominate. 
Yeah. So this is something also that we found. We also found that termites are able to regulate. See, greenhouses require perfect uh, temperature and humidity regulation. That's the purpose of a greenhouse. So we were able to find that termites regulate their inside fungal chambers where the fungus is grown at almost 100%, 99% humidity. And they maintain that humidity constant. And they also maintain temperature at least 5 to 6 degrees lower than the ambient temperature. So if outside it's like 40 degrees, Inside the mound, it will be like 32 or 35 degrees. So they are able to keep temperatures within the range that is suitable for cultivation of the fungus and also for their own survival. So this was one aspect that we looked at. But as I told you, I was also interested in understanding the engineering aspects of the termite mound. And this is where I teamed up with uh, my colleague Tejas Murthy, who is a granular physicist and he's in the civil engineering department. And I got him fascinated. For me, it was wonderful to get a civil engineer and a granular physicist fascinated by termites. And he's completely fascinated now. And what we were able to show was that termites use the moisture content and the organic content of a very fine fraction of the soil. So they are able to choose the right type of soil with the right amount of organic material and the right amount of moisture, which is between the liquid and plastic limit of the soil. So as engineers, you might have learned about liquid and plastic limit, right? So imagine termites are engineers, yeah? They control the moisture content, so they get just the right amount of moisture. Yeah, so that, and with coupled with the correct organic, uh, so they choose soils which have appropriate organic content and fine fractions, because the finer the fraction of the soil, the better you will be able to get good binding capacity. So they do use some of their secretion, but they don't need to use a lot of secretion for the binding because they have already come up with this optimal liquid plastic limit uh, and moisture content and organic composition. So the organic matter also serves as binding. So, you know, when I, 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 we discovered this and we found that we started this project thinking that termites must be using a lot of their salivary secretions to actually make this soil particles bind. And when we ended the project, we realized that termites don't need to use uh, so much of this uh, binding. They, they do use some binding. Because most of the binding is coming from manipulation of uh, the fine fraction, the organic material of the soil, and the water content. So when we have these, the termites get these three ingredients right, the amount of chemical binding that they have to contribute is very minimal. Okay, so this is what we were able to discover. And actually, we are continuing this work 
with potter wasps now because you know potter wasps also are wasps that build a uh, mud nests for their larvae but they are uh, these nests are much much smaller than a termite nest so we want to see if the same principles apply so we have a current ongoing project now uh, and i've got my engineering colleague fascinated can you imagine by potter wasps and he's getting his students fascinated by potter wasps uh, to see if we have similar principles applying across scales of construction and we know that humans have mimicked uh, what they see in nature so many human cultures build mud constructions right but if you look at those mud constructions they will add uh, organic material in terms of straw in terms of uh, they will choose particular types of uh, soil they won't just make it out of any soil yes and certain amount of moisture will be employed so we are very very therefore interested now there are people who have been working on human mud constructions for many many years but now we've sort of also provided a an angle from the termites as to how the termites are doing it so this i think will we have many many people interested in our findings because uh, termites don't need so many additives yes they just have to get that right combination of moisture and uh, fine fraction and uh, organic composition exactly i mean this is so beautifully remarkable the way these things come around and then i peculiarly like this uh, this phrase that you use that we thought that there might be interesting questions that we can find to ask so just wanted to ask you i mean i mean if you if you just you know imagine that you were starting out as a graduate student right now and and given all these luxuries you know at your at your disposal what kind of questions would you like to ask again what kind of questions would you like to address now i would go go back to the 100 question exercise that i did right very very early on i would sit and start by observation because it's really only when you make observations that you have questions that pop into your head you can't stare at a computer screen you can't read blogs to get inspiration the inspiration must come from you sitting on the bank of a river or on, uh, in the, in a grassland or wherever you are you i have done projects with ant mimicking spiders again on the isc campus and how did i find them i found i was studying sometimes you know students come in for summer projects and then i have to find something interesting for them to do okay we were ants these red ants are all over the campus and then suddenly you find a spider that looks like an ant and then i said okay this is very interesting and then suddenly a whole world of ant mimicking spiders pops out and then we published papers on ant mimicking spiders because we found so many different ant species of spiders that mimic them and mimic them for different reasons so that they can go into their nests and eat up the ants 
uh, they have chemical mimicry, and then suddenly, you know, a whole world opened up. And this was just because a student was asking me for a problem. So we said, okay, let's just wander around and look. And we looked, and we found a spider that mimics an ant. And we had so many questions. Then I had another student who was again, you know, I had to find another question. So we had these plants, which have, it's very common in uh, gardens, you know, they have this one big white bract and a spade, and it's, it's an exotic plant. And then I, I found a spider sitting on that. And I said, oh, okay, the spider looks like it's mimicking this plant. And so maybe there's something interesting. Why would a spider be wanting to mimic the plant? And then I put the student on, you know, let's look at this. And then we found, my gosh, this spider is actually attracting insects to the plant by reflecting ultraviolet from its back. Now we know that many insects are attracted to ultraviolet, right? So by having an ultraviolet reflecting big target, the spider was attracting insects to it and then happily eating up all these insects that were coming actually to pollinate the plant. And so suddenly we had a whole fabulous story about how the spider was actually uh, attracting insects to it. Just as we have ultraviolet lights in restaurants and places, you know, these bug zappers that zap insects. And the reason insects get attracted is because there's some ultraviolet components there, which the insects uh, find irresistible, right? Insect vision finds ultraviolet irresistible. So this is exactly what the spider was doing. And then we did these very nice, but the more interesting part of that story was that if you are an ultra, want to be an ultraviolet target, right? You don't want to sit on a background which has got ultraviolet. Why? Because then you will blend in with the rest of the ultraviolet. Yeah? So you want to sit on a background which has got less ultraviolet reflectance so that you become the real target. And we gave our spiders a choice of ultraviolet reflecting backgrounds and non-ultraviolet reflecting backgrounds. And we found that the spiders always chose the non-ultraviolet reflecting backgrounds because then they became the target which was reflecting the ultraviolet. But we had a lot of fun doing these experiments because, you know, these are jumping spiders, okay? And uh, we had to wait for days, cloudless days, because we were doing this in natural light. It's quite difficult to get good ultraviolet emitting artificial lights that don't affect your experiments. So we were doing this with natural light. And many times clouds will block ultraviolet. And so we had to do these experiments, wait for non-cloudy days. And our wretched spiders, oftentimes, you know, will just blow off with the wind. They will let out a silk line and they will blow. 
and our experiments would fail because the spiders had disappeared, the clouds had come in again. But we persisted and we got a beautiful paper out of it. Beautiful. So this is what I'm trying to say. You just need to have an open mind and curiosity and see something that looks out of the ordinary. You know? And then suddenly you will find everything opens up and a million questions pop out. And then you can't contain those questions. They are just too many. And then uh, sometimes, you know, in the middle of the night, I, I, I solve an experimental thing that has been bothering me. How do I do this experiment? Because I always tell my students that if you have to solve uh, an experiment, uh, to do the right experiment, you've got to think like your study organs. You've got to come down to that scale. Yeah? So how do you think like a nematode? How do you think like a spider? How do you think like a fig wasp? Because you, you, your experiment has to match the scale of the organism. And if you can't come down to that scale, then it's very difficult to design a good experiment. I just wanted to point out how incredibly remarkable it is to hear you spilling out these, I don't know, treasure troves of curiosity. And it's extremely fun to keep asking these questions because there's such an infectious <laughs> vibe there that you keep on, you know, uh, enthusing in us in some sense that we cannot stop asking questions anymore. It's really, really interesting, ma'am. Thanks a lot for sharing so many insights. I mean, and that tirelessly. It's incredibly... You're welcome. You're welcome. As I said, if you have a passion and you enjoy what you're doing, work is fun. Work is not work, no? It's it's pleasure. It's not boring equations or boring... Uh, I don't know what. It's uh, <laughs> It's just fun. This was Zeroing In with Dr. Renee Maria Borges. We extend our sincere gratitude to Dr. Borges for sharing her incredible experiences and giving us a peek into the beautiful natural world, along with Naman Jain for collaborating on this episode on behalf of the Zeroing In Season 2 team, which includes Arun S., Kandan Narayanan, Kriti Raj, Marala Amman Naveen, Sean Ethan Chaudhary Pankhtar, and I am Shreya Mishra. Thank you for listening to this episode. Zeroing In is a non-profit initiative brought to you in collaboration with the Alumni Association of the Indian Institute of Space Science and Technology, Thiruvananthapuram. If you have any suggestions, you can write to us on zeroinginpodcast at gmail.com or contact and follow us on our Instagram and Facebook handle at the Zeroing In Podcast.